0: time to roll up those joints, pack those bowls, and fire up those nails, because you're listening to
1: Blazin' with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. What's up everybody and welcome to another edition of Blazin'. I am your host, Bobby Black. And I hope you guys all had an awesome four twenty weekend this past week. Uh, I sure did. Uh, on four twenty, I hosted the hot high desert hot box uh, out in Victorville, California. Um, we had a great time, a lot of bands, a lot of great vendors. Uh, I got to meet uh, some of the stars of High Rise TV, uh, the two girls and one bong, uh, who were really fun and uh, just really sweet, uh, sweet girls. And then also Mr. Weedy, who is a uh, sort of a stoner pot leaf mascot character. And uh, it was a lot of fun, a lot of great music. Uh, So I want to say thanks to Elite 215 and Rehab Delivery for putting on the event and for uh, asking me to host it. Um, It was a really good time. And then... On Saturday, I headed over to the High Times Cannabis Cup. Uh, It was a three-day event. I only went for one of the days, but uh, it was quite a uh, turnout there. Um, There was uh, just tons of people, (laughs) lots of vendors. Uh, It was probably the biggest cup I've seen other than the uh, first legal one in Denver years ago. Um, Shout out to uh, some of my pals that I got to run into. Of course, Danny Danko from High Times. Crockett of Crockett Family Farms, Rez from Seedless, Swerve from Cali Connection, Sky from Smart Bee, uh, Eddie Funksta from Native Healing Oils, and anyone else I may have forgotten. Um, It was great hanging with you guys. All right, so later in the episode, I'll be speaking with uh, recently released Pot POW and beloved freedom fighter, Reverend Eddie Lepp. But before that, it's time for us to do a rundown of some of the week's headiest headlines. This is the Burndown.
2: Burning through the smoke and mirrors of the news.
1: All right, this week on the burn down. Uh, first in the burn down. a new survey from Yahoo News and Marist University has revealed a number of enlightening statistics that demonstrate how mainstream marijuana is becoming. According to the poll, 55 million Americans currently use marijuana. That's almost as many as there are cigarette smokers. Uh, around 78 million or nearly half of the. US population have at least tried pot in their lives at some point. Uh, So according to Attorney General Jeff Sessions, I guess half the U.S. population are, quote, not good people. (laughs) Among other data the survey provides uh, are that uh, 56% of Americans believe that smoking marijuana is socially acceptable now, and 52% of smokers are millennials, and 54% are parents. Next up in the burndown, uh, according to an article in the Chicago Tribune, Illinois is considering a proposal to legalize marijuana. The law would allow possession of up to one ounce of pot by people 21 and over, of course, driving under the influence would remain illegal, as would smoking in public. Uh, testifying before a panel of Illinois lawmakers, Colorado's marijuana czar Barbara Brawl, uh, cited some of the m- many positive effects uh, that Colorado has experienced since legalizing, including decrease in black market and teen usage, uh, safer products, and nearly $200 million in tax revenue that's been collected uh, that has helped fund drug abuse treatment and prevention, as well as providing $40 million for schools. If Illinois were to follow Colorado's example, Senator uh, Democratic Senator Heather Stearns predicts it could create thousands of jobs and generate between 350 to $700 million a, d- a year in tax revenues for the financially struggling state. On, on to Maine, where lawmakers are debating as to whether to delay licensing of marijuana social clubs. As I mentioned last week, Colorado officials recently voted against such a measure. Uh, the ballot initiative in Maine uh, that was approved by state voters last year includes references to social clubs where adults can buy or consume uh, can buy and consume recreational marijuana on premises but it also gives towns and cities local control over to whether to allow those marijuana businesses uh, opponents of the clubs raise concerns on the club employees uh, getting high or suffering quote health effects from the secondhand smoke Uh I don't uh, see what the issue is with that. I mean, nobody worries about that with alcohol. I'm sorry. Can we can we can we go back for a second? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna reread that lesson. Opponents of the four, of the 420 clubs raised concerns over how club employees would avoid getting high or quote suffering health effects from the secondhand smoke, as well as concerns about public safety and impaired driving. Maine wants to be number one in lots of things, but being the first state in the country to have essentially bars for marijuana isn't one of them, in my opinion, said Republican Senator Roger Katz. Well, why not alcohol? Why not outlaw alcohol bars, too, then? I mean, I'm guessing that most people hanging out in a bar are having at least a couple of drinks, which means they'd probably fail a breathalyzer. Uh, I mean, why not just hire pro cannabis staff and then you wouldn't have to worry about them getting high on the job? Uh, I mean, I doubt I doubt a person who hates weed is going to apply for a job at a weed club anyway. Next up on the burn down, we moved To Iowa, where lawmakers have voted to expand the state's medical marijuana program, uh, now allowing cannabis oil as a treatment for seriously ill patients. Um, The patients are currently allowed to possess CBD cannabis oil for the treatment of epilepsy, but since it's illegal to manufacture or distribute the oil in the state, and since federal law prohibits transportation across state lines, it has remained effectively illegal. The law would require companies wishing to grow, manufacture, and distribute the oil to submit proposals to the Department of Health, who would approve only two manufacturers and up to five distributors, uh, as well as expanding the number of conditions allowed uh, for which the oil would be permitted. Uh, Now, keep in mind, this is CBD-only oil we're talking about, containing no more than 3% THC. It is not the full cannabinoid spectrum or Rick Simpson uh, oil, as it's called, that's believed to help shrink tumors and cancer. And finally, on the burndown, uh, we move to Denver, where a religious nonprofit called the Elevation Ministries opened the first international church of cannabis on 420 in a centuries-old building that's been recently redecorated uh, with paintings by artists Kenny Scharf and uh, Okuda San Miguel. No cannabis com- consumption was allowed inside the facility until after 2 p.m., when the doors were closed to the public for a private invitation only 420 ceremony. Members of the church have already reached around 200 people. So if you are living in the Denver area and you, and cannabis is part of your spiritual, uh, so if you live in the Denver area and cannabis is part of your spirituality, you may want to check it out. That's going to wrap it up for the burndown this week, but stick around because we'll be right back with our guest for this week, the Reverend Eddie Lepp. Stay tuned. You're listening to Blazing with Be Black on Cannabis Radio. All right, guys, and we're back, and we're here with our guest this week, uh, who is one of America's most famous and beloved pot POWs. Um, he was the first person to be arrested for a medical grow after the passage of Prop 215. Um, his uh, gardens, uh, Eddie's Medicinal Gardens, were raided in 2004, and he was convicted, and what the DEA claimed was the highest value of any medical crop seized in the U.S. history. Uh, He was just released this past December after serving nearly eight years of a 10-year sentence. Please join me in welcoming to the show uh, High Times 2004 Freedom Fighter of the Year and uh, Mr. Marijuana Martyr himself, the uh, Reverend Eddie Lepp. Reverend, thank you so much for blazing with us today.
2: Oh, Hey, Bobby. Glad to be here. It's a real honor. Thank
1: you. The honor is all mine, sir. Uh, so l- let me ask you first off, uh, how are you adjusting, readjusting to life on the outside?
2: Pretty much, there wasn't much adjustment. What they did didn't really set back who I was or how I look at things or how I think about things. You know, it was certainly an experience, but I live my life in such a way I try not to let the day-to-day issues affect how I see the the larger picture. And that in mind throughout my made it real easy to readjust that and the fact that I came home to a very, very loving woman and a huge, huge, uh, amount of support from my family, my friends and all of the people that have followed my story over the years. So it, it was real reassuring and very humbling to realize how many people loved me and cared about me and it made my period of adjustment, uh, a lot easier, I think, for myself than for most that go through that experience
1: yeah that's that's good to hear um let's talk a little about your story and about your history, starting at the beginning uh where where are you from originally
2: uh originally, I was born in a uh, a little bitty town called La Harpe, Illinois, which is about twenty five or thirty miles from another little town right on the Mississippi River called Dallas City and uh I really don't remember any of that. My father was in the service, and we uh, spent a little time in Texas. And then when my dad got out, he moved to Colorado briefly. And from there, we went to Reno, Nevada. And uh, my first real cognizant memories are of jackrabbit shit and sagebrush. So (laughs) I pretty much grew up in in Nevada uh, up until I went to Vietnam when I was about 20 or 21. And uh, it it was a pretty good uh, childhood. My family was a loving, caring family, and my father made more than adequate money, so we did real well that way. And then I went to Vietnam, and uh, when I came home from Vietnam, I spent, I don't know, close to 20 years getting high in every way humanly possible on every substance I could put my hands on. And completely destroyed my life and had some very adverse effects on all of the people around me. I have a family I haven't seen or talked to in over 30 years because of my addictions and the mistakes and the screw ups I made. And, uh, then my dad got ill and I decided to get sober. I didn't want to be drunk when he died and thank God I was sober when he passed. And uh, then I went into the National Center for PTSD and uh, spent almost a year there and learned how to deal with the issues that had been haunting me. And over a period of two or three years, with the help of Linda Sentai, I was able to get off of all the booze and drugs. And I can say thankfully that uh, I've been free of any alcohol or hard drugs for three or 24 years now. And From the time I went to Vietnam until now, uh, with just a brief interruption of three or four years when I moved back to Reno, uh, I've lived in California, mostly northern California. I've spent, uh, up until the time I went to uh, prison, about 15 or 16 years in Lake County, and I'm currently residing in Sacramento with the true love of my life, my Heidi.
1: Oh, well, we'll talk a little about uh, about Heidi a little later on, but I, I want to stick to the earlier stuff at the moment. So uh, obviously the challenges you faced uh, coming back from Vietnam are, are challenges that a lot of veterans have faced and continue to face. Um, as someone who has hosted uh, many veteran panels at the High Times Cannabis Cups over the years, it's an issue that's become very dear to my heart. Um, I have many family members that have served World War II and and Vietnam as well. Of course, back then, a lot of veterans were medicating with uh, not just cannabis, obviously, like you said, alcohol and other drugs as well to deal with the PTSD that really wasn't being treated uh, adequately. Tell me a little about what marijuana did for you and how, how it helped you get out of that.
2: Well, I didn't realize, you know, as I consumed marijuana in the beginning the effects of it on me, uh, because most of the time I was drunker or high on, on other substances. And so it was, it was hard to identify and realize what was going on. Then, uh, after I went to the national center for PTSD, uh, I was straight for almost a year. And even though I returned to drinking and drugs periodically for the next several years, most of the time, all I used was marijuana. And once I gave up all of those other substances, uh, all I've used, uh, since then is marijuana. And as time passed, I was able to see not only how it healed me, uh, physically, but how it allowed me to heal myself mentally and to see most importantly, how it was able for me to get back in touch, uh, with the creator. And renew my association with, with God as I understood him. And I think my spiritual beliefs, being able to fruit and and come to the forefront in my life, were were critically uh, important in my recovery and critically important in shaping and determining the man that I would, was going to become. And the marijuana allowed me to Accept realities It allowed me to see the truth in life and in the truth and who I was and what I had done and It allowed me to deal with those issues in such a way that I grew from it instead of beating myself up and and Condemning myself. I was able to to grow both spiritually and as a man and I, I Think the
1: marijuana was very very helpful in that and you are a rastafarian minister um and uh, ganja is of course a sacrament for the rastafarians uh was it was it that ganja connection that that led you to rastafarianism tell us a little about what drew you to that faith particularly and and how you got involved in it
2: well there's
1: a a
2: wonderful young man who was in my life and still is named shiloh and He's kind of like a, a son to me, and we often had discussions about everything, but uh, occasionally they were philosophical, and one day, we were setting out uh, smoking a joint on the ledge. We called, uh, we, not at the time, but we we eventually named it Roster Ridge, and uh, we were sitting there smoking a joint, looking uh, down on the area that would become the garden that I uh, was arrested for, and we were talking, and I explained to him my philosophical and spiritual beliefs and one thing or another, and I'd expressed to him my disappointment in organized religion and and all of the uh, basically accepted uh, religious facilities in the United States and around the world, and as we talked, he says, "I, I know what you are, and I says, really, I says, what is it that you think I am? And he says, well, you Rostamon. you Rostamon true and true. And I didn't totally understand what he meant at that time. i had heard of Rastas, but I, I wasn't real familiar with it. And so I uh, bought several books that discussed Rasta religion. And another friend of mine, Jason King, uh, who authored the Canna Bible series of books, Uh, hooked me up with a a minister in Jamaica who was a Rastafarian minister. And I spent many, many hours on the phone with him and realized and accepted the fact that that the belief system of the Rastafarians was close to my belief system as as any uh, spiritual or religious group I had ever known. And I went ahead and became an ordained minister and, was able actually, the whole time I was in prison, to help uh, educate and inform many of the young Rasta men and the history of our faith and, and how it came about and why it's so important uh, in this world of today. A lot of people misunderstand Rasta. They think, oh, they just smoke pot and get high, and that's not true at all. If anything, the Rastas are very, very closely aligned with the Native American spirituality and the way they look at things. Uh, One of the most important things to our religion is protecting the mother and seeing to it that you don't abuse the mother and by the mother I mean the mother that we live on. Uh, She has sheltered and nurtured mankind for millennium and what's been done to her in the last 100, 150, 200 years is not only shocking and atrocious but if we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves a sting, strictly because of our own actions. And this is something that, that I understand and identify with that must be addressed. For most Rostam men, uh, leading a very life of purity and truth is the most important thing to us. And I was very attracted to that, and I continue to be attracted to that. I'm, as you say, a a reverend on the roster religion. I'm also a member of the Native American Church, and I've been a member of both for probably 20 years. The parallels between the the way we look at things is very interesting, and I just find myself attracted to it much more than organized
1: religion. Uh, And so your ministry uh, that you founded in California was tied directly to your medicinal garden, was it not?
2: Well yeah actually the the gardens were all put in through the church we had somewhere between 25 and 2800 members you didn't have to grow cannabis to be a member of the church but if you were a member of the church and you wished to grow cannabis you had to have a valid California medical ID card because it was our goal to protect everybody
1: as much as possible from any threat of police involvement how did the gardens get started uh, at these medicinal gardens and those were that was in Upper Lake California right
2: yes it was uh, the way it actually got started uh, in 1996 I was arrested. Uh, my wife Linda had got cancer for the the third time in her life and I planted a garden. Uh, 132 plants, because without the help of Dennis Perrone, I could not have furnished the medicine that she needed to survive. And I put in this garden, and then in uh, 98, I believe it was, I finally went to trial, and that's when I became the first person arrested, tried, and acquitted under 215. And during that year and a half that I was going to trial, Uh, Linda and I transported anywhere from four to six, up to 10, 12 people a week, uh, into San Francisco to see, uh, Dr. Todd McCurria and get recommendations. And at that time there were no attorneys advertising that they were medical marijuana attorneys. There were no doctors advertising that they did recommendations. And Linda and I saw a need. And so what we did in 99, we bought the farm and we started having uh, meetings, if you will, or clinics where we would help people get their recommendations by bringing doctors to the farm. And at one time, the state of California said that they had uh, approximately 100,000 registered medical marijuana users And Linda and I were responsible for about thirty to 35,000 of those recommendations. Wow. During that, we met quite a few people that were seriously ill and for one reason or another were unable to grow their own medicine. And so we, uh, in the beginning, it actually was one person, uh, a girlfriend of Linda's. We put in plants for her and and grew them for her, and then the following year, we grew plants for, I don't know, eight or 10 people, and then the third year, it was like 12 or 15. And then in 2004, I uh, bought the property across the street uh, from our our home, which made it the original 40-acre home site. And we started off with just a small amount of, of plants and people. But as word spread about what I was doing, more and more people came to us and and more and more people wanted us to help them. And we realized that by allowing these people all to grow in one spot, that we were removing literally hundreds of, of potential crime scenes from ever happening. And I had at that time a And understanding with the Lake County Sheriff's Department that they could come up and look around any time they wanted, just, you know, give me a call, let me know you're coming. And uh, as more and more people came in, we added more and more plants, and we ended up with 32,524 plants on, on 23 acres,
1: and you know, back then, that was, I mean, now there's so many giant scale grows that are going on since all the changes have been happening. But back then, I mean, that was incredible. I mean, that was huge. It still uh, is, I mean, but I'm just saying, it, it, back then, it was, there weren't many other people doing that.
2: Well, there was nobody doing it. Uh, absolutely <laughs> yeah. nobody. Uh, right up until that time, the only kind of cannabis grower in the entire uh, state of California was what they referred to as a gorilla grower. And nobody grew outdoors, uh, where it could be seen. It was secreted back in the, the forest or, you know, out of the way somewhere where nobody would know where it was. And once Linda and I started doing what we did, uh, I ended up with pictures of the garden and in, in virtually every cannabis magazine in the world. And, people realized, I think, that, you know, if you had the courage to, to do it, that it was all right to, you know, give it a try. I've been credited with, you know, creating what we have today uh, because of my actions. And uh, I know I certainly didn't do it single-handed. There were a lot of people and a lot of different things involved. But certainly the fact that, that Linda and I had the courage to, to plant those tens of thousands of plants with Highway 20 running right through the middle of the garden, had a a major impact on people having the courage to plant their gardens. And now, if you drive up 101 or or Interstate 5 all the way from 80 to the Oregon border, it's garden after garden after garden after garden. And uh, we had a lot to do with it. We're very proud of that. We're very proud that, that we were able to make a difference and to show people that if you have the courage to stick to your convictions you can change the world
1: absolutely you know you talked about uh, the garden being in different cannabis magazines i was at high times uh, and i remember the, the iconic photo of you standing above these giant plants i mean there were obviously more than one photo but that photo always stood out in my mind like these giant tree plants and there you were, like kind of standing above them. And I remember just being blown away as a young man who, you know, had times very long at the time, and uh, it blew me away. And I don't remember exactly. I don't recall exactly when we first met, uh, Eddie, but it was it had to be fairly early on because I, I know I was at high times since '94, and uh, I was you know I was in Amsterdam when you received your Freedom Fire Award. Uh, I think that that was 2004, but um, I, I don't recall when. Have you been to? Had you been to many cannabis cups?
2: Uh, I went to thirteen or fourteen of them in a row. and the last one that I went to was in oh seven, I believe. So if you back date from seven for thirteen years, that was when I went to my first ones.
1: Well, it was probably it was probably one of the very first cups that that I went to as well that we met then. So it's been quite a while uh, for yeah. sure.
2: actually, you know the the picture you're talking about it's kind of kind of a cute story. High Times was doing an article on me and they had a, a company and I can't remember the name of the young gentleman or wonderful young man came up from Santa Cruz to take the photos and they were actually set up on uh, the hillside a little bit away and because the, the plants were so big and it was all so green they were having trouble focusing their cameras and what happened was I was actually up on the deck of the house and they were yelling back and forth. And I said, hold on. And so I I went downstairs into the garden and I had a 10 foot folding ladder and I unfolded it and I climbed up on the top of the folding ladder and waved at them until they could get all their cameras focused. And then when they got their cameras focused, they said, Hey, that was a pretty cool shot. Climb back up there, and we'll see if we can get a picture of it. So I climbed back up to the top of the ladder, and when I got up there, the ladder started shaking. And that's why my arms were out to my side, because I was afraid I was going to fall <laughs> fall off the ladder. And uh, then they took that shot, and the shot that I think High Times actually used, uh, which is the one with the little dog in the bottom, was actually taken by uh, Craig Tierney, who was another wonderful young man. He uh, and Jason Dunlap uh, lived with me for about six or seven years uh, and videotaped and, and took pictures almost everything we did. And I believe Jason has a uh, documentary coming out about the six or seven years covering all of the raids, and the trial and everything else sometime in the next 6 to 12 months.
1: Wow, I look forward to seeing that. You mentioned the raids. Uh, I did read that you got, you were actually raided a number of times before the, before the raid that finally uh, put you in prison. The one that you finally were convicted on, was that in 2004? They came in
2: in 2002 uh, originally and took, I believe they said, what was the equivalent of 1800 kilos it was about uh, 285 or 90 plants and uh, four or five people were taken into custody and they were all released that night or the next morning from the local uh, county jail. Uh, I was never arrested. I actually was down in, in Monterey seeing my doctor when the raid happened. And when I got to San Francisco, uh, we called home and I, we spoke to our daughter and when she told us what had happened, we immediately called the U uh, S attorney's office in San Francisco. And, and they said that, you know, they didn't want to see us at that time. And I went ahead and, and I called them weekly for two or three weeks, a month maybe. And they decided they weren't going to prosecute us and let it go. Then in 2003, Waldo, I don't know if you remember, but when Kyle Cushman was doing the words Waldo things in high times, Waldo was actually a living, breathing man who ended up becoming a good friend of mine. And Waldo came out in 2003 uh, during harvest and actually died in my front room. And the uh, sheriff's department came up with the coroner and there was like two or three hundred pounds of marijuana laying on a bunch of tables. And about 20 young ladies out in the parking lot waiting to come in and trim it. And they came and, and removed Waldo and took him away and never did anything. And then in 2004, the uh, DEA raided us in August and cut down the 32,524 plants. And I was arrested. Uh, then they came back in February of 2005 and i was rearrested uh that time i believe they got what they said was 11,000 plants i think and i was served with a superseding indictment and at that time i was facing uh four life sentences plus oh my god years, uh plus 40 years uh 17 million dollars in fines
1: that's that's horrible
2: oh uh, yeah but you know A man's got to do what a man's got to do. And it wasn't really like I had a choice in it. You know, I remember Linda one time telling me, I just wish sometimes it wasn't so overwhelming. And I told her, I says, well, I'll do whatever you want. I said, you pick the first person we say no to. She turned to me and started crying. And she says, honey, we can't say no to any of them.
1: And we never get. What would you what were you actually? you weren't convicted of that harsh a sentence, obviously. Uh, it was a harsh sentence, though. It was ten years, right? That was the that was the sentence.
2: Well, f- funny you should mention that. We presented a, a religious defense and a medical defense, and when we got up to actually going to court, the judge denied me a religious defense and denied us a medical defense and during jury instructions instructed the jury that the only thing they had to consider was the fact that i had signed an affidavit saying that i owned the property and that i knew they were marijuana plants and they had to make their decision on that uh had she granted us the religious defense or the medical defense both of which we qualified and should have uh, been given uh, i would have never been convicted uh once i was convicted we applied for what they call the safety valve and there's five facets that you have to qualify for under the safety valve. I qualified for all five of them and yet was denied the safety valve. If I would have been given the safety valve, I probably would have served no more than two to two years to 30 months. But the judge once again denied that. And so I was given the mandatory minimum 10 years, but, it's my belief and the belief of many people that are familiar with the case that that sentence had nothing to do with me growing marijuana. Uh, in 2008, Jack Rivera and I introduced a, an initiative for the full legalization of marijuana, and we needed a, almost 700,000 signatures to get it on the ballot, and we started three or four months later than we should have and we didn't hire anybody. It was strictly grassroots, and we ended up with, I believe, over four hundred thousand signatures, which everybody was aware of. And basically, the the message was, you know, we didn't get it on the ballot this time because we ran out of time and and didn't have the money. Come two thousand and ten, we will get this passed, and there was no doubt in anybody's mind that that's what would have happened. And as soon as the election was over, within two or three weeks, my my Uh case had been going on for five years, and we delayed it, you know, for things like my attorney's having a toothache, or uh, Dave Hall, the uh, prosecutor, one time was uh, in charge of a a golf tournament for his law school alma mater, so they delayed it, and, you know, every excuse in the world to delay it, but... Uh, once they realized that Jack and I were going to legalize marijuana in California in 2010, the judge says, well, we're having a trial in two weeks. And my attorneys brought in letters from my doctor saying I needed operations and this and that, uh, and that it would take six to 12 months for me to recover, et cetera, et cetera. And she said she didn't care. We were having the trial and uh, within two or three weeks, the trial started and the largest bust in the history of the DEA, my entire trial lasted three days and less than 15 hours.
1: Oh, man. Well, we need to take a quick break. Uh, but um, when we come back, I want to just uh, touch briefly about you mentioned Jack Herr, and I wanted to talk a little about your relationship with Jack and uh, yeah. and about what your life's been like since you've gotten back out. So, all right, everybody stay tuned. We'll be right back with more from the Reverend Eddie Lepp here on Blazing. You're listening to Blazing with Bobby Black on Cannabis
0: Radio. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Voober vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Voober vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the boober way.
3: The smoke is rising, and the next crop of podcasts devoted to cannabis providers and enthusiasts are ready to be harvested. Welcome to the Cannabis Radio Network, founded by respected rainmakers who have been producing award-winning podcasts for over a decade. Industry headlines, business updates, medical reports, marketing, and e commerce education rolled up perfectly for your consumption. Let's grow together. The Cannabis Radio Network. CannabisRadio.com.
0: Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to BCBudDepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks offering over 50 strains of top-quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Purps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade, so you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge, guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for Indica or Sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto flowering bc bud depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle but don't take my word for it check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code blazin420 at checkout to receive 10 percent off your order bc bud depot home of cannabis champions since 2002 please check your local state and national laws before ordering
1: With Bobby Black. All right, everybody, and welcome back to Blazin'. We are here with the Reverend Eddie Lepp, pot POW, uh, beloved figure activist in the cannabis community. Um, we were talking before the break. You had mentioned about your efforts with the late, great Jack Herrer uh, trying to pass legalization in California. Um, tell me a little about your relationship with Jack, how you met him, and and, and what the nature of your friendship was like.
2: I met Jack, uh, I guess, back in the late 80s, early 90s. We weren't real good friends or anything. I just hadn't met him and knew who he was. And then my dear friend, Dennis Perrone, opened up his uh, world-famous dispensaries, uh, the first one on Church Street and then the second one on Market. And Dennis and I grew to have a very close relationship because my wife, Linda, had gotten the cancer, and as I alluded to earlier, without Dennis's kind and generous uh, efforts to help Linda uh, by seeing to it she had the medicine she needed, I don't think she would have survived it at that time. And through that friendship with Dennis, I met Jack again because we were trying to get 215 passed. This was all prior to 215. And Jack and I, uh, became fairly friendly, but we didn't see each other a lot because Jack at that time was living down in in Los Angeles. And of course I was living in Northern California and we would run into each other occasionally at at events and, and one thing or another, and the, the friendship developed. And then, uh, I believe it was late 99 or 2000, Jack had a stroke and I saw him a year or so later and he didn't remember me at all. And we talked and talked and talked and saw each other at these events almost weekly. And then uh, I believe in 2001, 2000 or 2001, we were at the Seattle Hemp Fest. And they have a VIP dinner every Friday night before Hemp Fest starts. And Linda and I were sitting out on the balcony at this particular building where they were having the VIP thing. And she was looking over my shoulder back towards the building and I was looking over at her and she says, oh, goody, goody here. I think that's Jack. It looks like Jack. And I was just sitting there. I didn't, didn't move. You know, I just was sitting there. And all of a sudden I heard, there's Eddie. There he is. And I turned and it was Jack. And Jack had remembered who I was and had remembered our friendship. And from that day until the day I went in prison, Jack and I were virtually inseparable. I spent most of the last 10 years of Jack's life with him. And we were on the road, I don't know, anywhere from 45 to 50 weeks a year going to event after event all over the world. And uh, if there's a legend in this industry, it is Jack rare. I remember Jack found it very difficult to speak after his stroke. And when we would go to these events, after six, seven, eight minutes, he would not be able to continue coherently. You know, he would get stuck and and couldn't get his thoughts out. And I would come in and and take over, you know, and we used (laughs) used to really upset all of the MCs because none of them ever got to introduce me because when Jack got to the point that he knew he couldn't keep track, he'd just say, here's my friend, daddy Let me hand me the microphone. <laughs> and I started every speech for many, many years by pointing out to people that everybody should have a hero. Everybody should have someone they want to look up to and emulate. And I don't mean being a star. I mean, anybody can be a star. Anybody can shoot themselves in the ass in front of a strip club at three o'clock in the morning. That's not, <laughs> but to be a true hero is very special and for people to have heroes, it's very special. And if you're lucky every once in a while, you might just one day be able to meet your hero or see him at an event or something. And if you're really, really lucky, you might actually get to get their autograph or, or spend a minute or two talking to him. And in my case, My hero was not only my hero, he was my mentor, he was my best friend, he was my partner. And he was and is the great Jack Herrera. And at that time, every audience I ever said that in front of exploded in applause for the man. And it was truly one of the, the greatest honors in my life to know Jack and Jeannie Herrera. And to have been a part of his life. To have Jack be a part of mine are memories that I will treasure forever. Every bingie we ever had, or party, or whatever you want to call it, we, in the Rasta religion, we we'll refer to them as bingies. But every celebration we ever had, Jack was at. And uh, it just, he was just such a truly wonderful, amazing man, and inspired so many. Like I say, it was truly an honor to have been part of his life and to have him been part of mine. He was, he is, and will always be
1: a hero. Absolutely, and he was a hero to me as well, and to everyone at High Times at the time. And I hope that uh, that the young people who are growing up in the in the cannabis more cannabis friendly world today care enough to know and learn about how we got to where we are, because there are so many people, such as Jack and yourself, any uh, who have really paved the way and allowed allowed this to happen. And uh, I know that Jack would be is very proud of you uh, looking down uh, to see how you've been an inspiration for people in the cannabis movement as well. Um, we're running low on time, but I do want to make sure that we, we, we cover everything because uh, we haven't really talked about your release. So you had served uh, about seven and a half years, if I'm not mistaken, of your sentence. Uh, you were released in December of this past year. Um, and I was one of, the, uh, one of the many people who watched live on uh, Facebook as you were greeted a- upon leaving prison by a number of friends and loved ones outside the gates, including your fiancé, Heidi. So I wanted to ask you because I've known Heidi for a while now. And I didn't uh, realize that you two are an item. So how, how long have you guys, uh, tell me a little about how that came about and how you guys met.
2: Well, it depends on who you ask. If you ask my ex-wife, she got us together. If you ask real, her, her ex-significant other, he got us together. And the truth of the matter, it was neither one of them. It was a young lady named Christy Dunlevy, And um, she introduced us uh, right after I went into prison. And I think both of us knew from the very beginning that was something very special there. But Heidi, being the lady she is, pointed out that we were both in relationships and and basically stayed that way for most of the time I was incarcerated. And we emailed each other back and forth several times a week and and would talk on the phone about once a month, uh, strictly platonic as friends. And... Then there came a time where I didn't hear from Heidi for almost a year. And in prison, we only allowed 30 email contacts. And most guys would have, you know, taken her off their contact list after a while. In my case, I had 10, 15, 20, 30 people a week begging to be on my email list. But I never took her off because I knew there was something special about our friendship. And then one day i get an email from her. And we started emailing again, and I called her on the phone, and we spoke a couple times on the phone. And after we'd been conversing, I guess, I don't know, a week or two, she said, uh, "Hey, I just wanted you to know that I broke up with the gentleman I was with, and i've I've been broke up for over a year, and i'm I'm happy being single, and everything's going fine, and I'm okay." And I said, well, that's interesting. I says, because I turned in all of my divorce papers two weeks ago. And so for the next year and a half, I spoke to her almost daily on the phone. And for a year and a half, she insisted that there would never be anything between us but a a very strong, positive friendship. And uh, although I must admit, I was more hopeful At the same time, I respected her feelings and, you know, was content just to have a friendship. Uh, Then as it got nearer to me getting out of prison, I needed a a residence. And Heidi was kind enough to say, well, you can come live with me if you would like to, if you need to. And I said, okay. And then when I actually got out of prison, Heidi flew to Colorado and and met me at the airport with a, a small crowd of people that uh, transported me to Denver and and put us on the plane. And that was on a Wednesday. Heidi had told me numerous times that she would never get married, that she certainly was not interested in a long-term relationship, and that we were gonna be friends. Well, Sunday we got up and went to church And part of going to church, of course, was to go see Dennis Perrone, who at the time was having a lot of health issues. And after we left Dennis, uh, we drove down to the ocean to look at the ocean because I hadn't seen it in almost 10 years. And we were sitting there in a parking lot. And to this day, I really don't know why, but I leaned over and I kissed her. And when we got done kissing, I pulled back and I looked her in the eye and I said, you know you will marry me someday. And she looked at me and she said, yes, when?
1: <laughs> well, it and looks it, like it's going to be coming soon, right?
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, June 23rd is our, our big day. And uh, we're doing all kinds of things. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful day. And then uh, June 24th, the following day, we'll be having the uh, Eddie Lepp Love Fest and Green Heart Awards and the main focus of the Green Heart Awards is the uh, Jack Herrera uh, Memorial Lifetime Award, which uh, this year will be going to Dennis Perrone, and we're hoping that Dennis will be able to attend. Uh, I spoke to his people this morning, and he's still very ill. Uh, They're hoping that he'll be released from the hospital and be able to go home tomorrow. But uh, we've been blessed. Uh, Tim Blake from the Emerald Cup uh, is involved in this. Uh, There's a lot of major sponsors involved. And so it should be a really wonderful event for the people in the Sacramento area. And we're really looking forward to it. We have some very well-known top flight entertainment coming in for the event and uh, a ton of vendors and stuff. So we're, we're really looking forward to it.
1: It sounds cool, and I'm very honored that uh, you guys invited uh, me to come up for the wedding, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Besides uh, marrying your love, what else is in store for you in the near future? Uh, How long will it be before you're allowed to enjoy uh, cannabis again? And also, uh, what are your plans for the future? Do you intend to get involved in the cannabis industry uh, with your own uh, branding or consulting or strains or anything like that?
2: Oh, yes, most definitely. My dear friend, uh, Alan Atkinson, uh, within a company called Grokashi, took care of our, our business the entire time I was gone and nurtured it and babied it and turned it into something uh, very special. And right now we're in the process of, of getting the startup capital and we will have a, a full line of products that are all very friendly to the mother they're all organic products and actually replenish the earth with uh beneficial runoff and and just a multitude of things that that these products do that are truly with them and we'll be getting that uh launched here before the end of the summer we should have that in full production i'm involved with several uh groups uh weed maps Uh, is interested in doing a a series where we travel around and critique uh, different uh, cannabis gardens and one thing or another so there's a a lot of interest in in a lot of different projects our attorney Joseph Tully uh, Will be going back to court to see if we can get the terms of my probation readdressed uh, by the judge and we should be doing that sometime in the next month or so so it'll depend on his rulings on how much of an involvement I can have, how quickly. But the other side of that is, is as you know, Heidi is a very (laughs) headstrong young lady and she has my full power of attorney. So holding her back can sometimes be difficult.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know what? I got to say, uh, I wish you so much uh, success and luck with your endeavors. Um, You sure deserve it. And as someone who helped pioneer this industry, you deserve to reap some of the benefits of it. We can't let all the uh, corporate people come in and make all the money, right? We (laughs) we have to make some for ourselves as well. But uh, I just wanted to say I wish you nothing but the best, Eddie. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, I look forward to seeing you again in person, and giving you a nice hug, and, uh, and just celebrating this plant that we love and, and life with you. I'm looking forward to it.
2: Well, I'm looking forward to uh, spending the rest of my life with Heidi, and uh, continuing my endeavors in the cannabis movement and industry, and my continued relationship with the Most High. And I thank you very much for taking the time to uh, honor me with this interview. And he uh, said,
1: Rastafari. <laughs> yes, I. All right, Eddie. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. And uh, blessings to you and Heidi. And uh, we'll see you soon. All right. Bye-bye. All right, guys. And that is going to wrap it up for this week's episode. I want to thank our guest, the Reverend Eddie Lepp. I'd like to thank our sponsors, 420 Science. Be sure to check them out at 420science.com. Check out all the cool products they have available. If you'd like to check us out online, you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash blazon with Bobby Black. Uh, leave us some feedback. Give us a like. Uh, we have links to a whole bunch of stuff related to the show on the page, so be sure to check it out. Um, also, I should mention that there is a GoFundMe page for the Reverend Eddie Lepp uh, since he lost pretty much all of his possessions after coming out of prison. Uh, w- there's a fundraising going on to try to help him replace some of that stuff and make his transition back into uh, freedom a little easier. So if you would lo- if you'd like to donate to help uh, Eddie Lepp, please go to GoFundMe.com slash Rev Eddie E-D-D-Y L-E-P-P. That's GoFundMe.com slash R-E-V-E-D-D-Y-L-E-P-P. And there will be a link for that on our Facebook page. You can also follow me on social media, Twitter at Bobby Black, Instagram at Bobby Black 420. Once again, thanks for listening. This is Bobby Black saying, on and peace off."